I'm Alan Clark, and you're listening to The Photo Untaken, stories from outside the frame. A few years back, I did a workshop with Sam Abel in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it was just fantastic. Not knowing a lot about him, I knew he was a National Geographic photographer. I knew his work. I was familiar with him, but him as a person, I just wasn't familiar with him as a person. And he brings so much to photography besides just the technique itself, but he brings a poetry. He brings a poetry to photography that is missing, I think, sometimes in a lot of people in their work. And he gets you to think about it. He gets you to think about the poetry in your life and the poetry in your work. And that's what's so great about Sam. And I'm so excited to listen for you to listen to what he's got to say today. You and I have spent some time together in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the Santa Fe workshops. And the one thing that I didn't know about you is that you majored in English at the University of Kentucky. And that, and I've always called you the poet photographer. And that kind of explains that you majored in English, but minored in journalism. That's right. What kind of led you there and not instead of photography, because I'm sure that you did this in addition to photography. So I had a very influential high school teacher and he was my mentor and was looking out for me as I left high school and guided me to go to the University of Kentucky because a former student of his had gone down there, a woman, and she had succeeded. She was editor of the student paper. And he suggested I go down, have a look, and ask them what they had in the way of student photography program. They had nothing, but they wanted to start one, and they said, we'd like to start it with you. You would be the student photography program at UK. You actually started it? Yeah, I started it, yeah. That's crazy. And it was just uh, myself, another freshman, and our sort of on-campus photographer who was in charge of student publication photography. And he did it all, and they wanted to offload that responsibility and work to students. They thought it would be better handled by students. So this freshman and I became the student photography program at UK. And so I did things as a freshman that at another more established photo school, I wouldn't have done until I was a senior, probably. There was no one to do it other than Clyde Wills and I. and. Uh, Clyde, uh, I think, was there only a year, a year and a half. I stayed on and became editor of the yearbook. And that was a very influential moment in my life, that yearbook, which is a, it's a, that's another whole story, the yearbook. But it led to National Geographic pretty directly, the yearbook. Wow. That's funny because that's how I started as well. I didn't know that we had this in common was... I believe I started in junior high on the yearbook staff and then went to high school. And it's funny because my senior year, I basically just turned in all the photos of my friends and things I liked, which ended up making up most of the yearbook, which is hilarious. If you look at my senior year, it's literally (laughs) all my friends and just stuff that we did and all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of an inside job, but went on to college and did or university and did the same thing. Um, But that's funny. We both started doing yearbooks and annuals, I guess they used to call them back then. That's right. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that once you left there, that kind of led to National Geographic after that? It did. The yearbook came out in 67. And that summer, I was a summer intern at Geographic. And I managed to turn that into a fall and then a winter internship. So I was there eight months instead of three months. And that just shows you, I think, zeal and determination to get the most out of that experience learn the most and do the most. And it set the stage for me 
two years later to become a contract photographer at age 27. Were there some of your heroes already working at Geographic at the time? Were there some, you know, where you were just in awe of these people when you started there? Definitely. Uh, I knew their names. I knew their work. And then I knew them. I got to know them. And it was an invaluable education. The great thing about the Geographic internship in those days was they gave you real assignments. And they expected you to turn in publishable work. But I was there long enough also to test the kind of life that it was. I think that there's two levels on which you have to succeed at the geographic. One was the photography, the ability level, you might say, the ability to make pictures, to see, and to execute photographically. The other level that you had to learn about and succeed on was the lifestyle. And the easiest way to tell you about that difficulty is that you never saw your work. You would go weeks and sometimes months without seeing your work. And not everybody is equipped for that doubt, living with that doubt. Mm -hmm. But it suited me or I was able to coexist with it. It gave me the feeling later in life when I was able to look back on it that you had to have faith as well as talent to succeed at the geographic. You had to have faith that what you were doing was good, good enough, and more than good enough. And you had no proof whatsoever. And that ate away at people. Mm. It ate away at me, but I was able to, I would say, coexist with it. How did that help with your objectivity about your own work? (laughs) You had to carry your work in your mind. I look back on it now, now that we're, I anyway, I'm 20 years into the digital experience of seeing work. And I remarked to myself about the astonishing difference between not seeing your work and seeing your work. Seeing your work is much better. Mm -hmm. So I can't say anything in praise of not seeing your work. I can just say that I accepted it as a fact of that life. And it made me, I would say, a relentless worker in those years, because without proof, you just kept at it. If you had proof that you had done well, you'd move on. Mm. And uh, I tended not to move on until I'd exhausted the subject. (laughs) I do the same thing sometimes just from hammering a subject till it's just, you know, in the ground, literally. Mm -hmm. Jim Stanfield was probably the preeminent National Geographic photographer. In other words, he came closest to the ideal producer for them. And he was known as a wholly relentless photographer. And I asked him about it one day, and he said, Sam, I don't, I can't leave a town or a city until I meet myself coming around a city block. And what he meant by that was he'd been up and down that street and around that corner both ways so many times that when he met himself, when he realized that he was meeting himself, it was time to leave, but not until then. Wow. Have you met yourself in certain countries in the same way? (laughs) Well, I had to walk away from that conversation with Jim Stanfield because I thought, that's not me. I can't live that way. I haven't lived that way. That's not who I am as a photographer or a person. That was Jim Stanfield. 
and he took it farther than anybody else did, the relentless work. And I knew that I couldn't be that hard on myself and that hard on the assignment. That suited him. That's who he was. I was not that way. I knew that I had to have a lighter touch. Do these things run together, you know, photography and English and literature? Were these things, you know, speaking to each other as a young person when you were photographing things? Yes. I could have become a writer. I know that. I write now. I'm writing a long essay for my next book, which comes out this fall. And I write a column for our local free newspaper about other people's photographs. I analyze them and comment on them and uh, admire them. So writing is never far from my life, and reading is almost the uppermost thing that I do and always have. So I'm a serious reader. I'm a half-serious writer, and I know that I could have had that as a career, but photography was more appealing. It was more dynamic. And when I was young, that strongly spoke to me, the dynamic of photography. Writing had a different dynamic, and that dynamic was that you took out the creative energy needed to write. You took that out on yourself. I believe the same creative energy was required for photography, but I could work it out physically. I would walk, I would travel, I would engage with people. I wasn't going one-on-one with myself at a typewriter. I was out in the field. still very dynamically creating, but creating in a different and, for me, better context. Would you encourage others, and do you encourage others to write or to, you know, just put pen to paper and think about some of their shots before they do it? Right. Oh, gosh, yes. That's especially important, of course, after the picture's made, and you want to convey something about the picture, about the context, the story, the meaning of it. And that's always been a, how should I say this, not a conflict, but a decision. Should the photograph stand on its own? Can it stand on its own? Shouldn't that be the ideal? No words necessary here. This photograph says it all, speaks for itself and the situation. So I've gone back and forth about that for 50 years. Uh, How much can writing be married to a photograph? How much should it? be married. This next book that's coming out will not have a conjoined text. The photographs will all stand on their own. But there'll be an essay in the front of the book, and in the back of the book will be what I refer to as thumbnail notes about selected pictures. When I was a boy learning photography, my dad got something called the U.S. Camera and the Popular Photography Annuals of the Year, the Best Pictures of the Year. So this is a thick magazine that came out in December and honored the best photographs of the year. And the photographs were presented without text, but in the back of the magazine were these thumbnails. And I avidly ate those up. I think I learned photography, substantially learned photography by comparing the photograph to the story that was in the back of the book. And they'd have tech data, too, in the thumbnail as part of the thumbnail. 
I won't have that. That doesn't interest me very much. <laughs> and my tech data is almost all the same, so it's boring. But the little story that accompanies the picture, it's almost like I can't publish a photograph without elaborating on it and amplifying on it. I do that when I teach. I do that when I talk. And I do that in my books, previous books. But in this book, which is a 50-year retrospective, there's just 100 pictures, and I'm going to let them, for the first time, stand alone. Is this a change for you? I mean, is this something that you have just thought, you know, I'm just going to be quiet? <laughs> yeah, it's, yes. My editor, my long-term editor, Leah Ben-David-Val, who I met at National Geographic and I'm still in touch with professionally, She's an advocate of the let them stand alone way of publishing photographs. I think in this book, she believes in the photographs as they are and wants me to let them stand alone. I like the words that you do have with photographs. I like that you talk and that you teach and that you have said it before. And I'll say it again. To me, you're the poet photographer, but I also know that this is kind of a Zen thought. I like this too, just because just having a clear mind and just letting me enjoy these things wash over me. Right. That's the hope. It's also, it feels to me like the risk. And it's also, it feels like it creatively constrains me. I'm such a talker and writer about individual photographs and bodies of work and so forth. So I am going to have selected notes in the back of the book to console myself. <laughs> 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 That's funny. Let's go back a little bit to the start of your career at Geographic. For other photographers out there who are our listeners, there weren't a lot of tricks back then. You know, you told us at one of the workshops that there wasn't wide angles and you weren't taking the camera and putting it really high or really low to the ground and doing tricks and all this type of stuff. You said that it was either a 35 millimeter lens or a 50 millimeter lens, waist high, no lower, no higher than eye level. There weren't a lot of tricks back then. That was a conscious decision that they'd made, I guess, as a policy, or was that just like something you guys did? That was me. And it wasn't early. It was, I came to that. I grew into that when I was in college. I was, you know, not wealthy. I had jobs all the way through college. And my parents, being teachers, didn't have money to throw at me. And so I saved my money. And each year I bought a new lens. And I bought it from Hong Kong, from T.M. Chan in Hong Kong. I'd send a check to T.M. Chan. And a month later, I'd get a lens. And for months at a time, I would only use that lens. This is in college. And then I'd get another lens, you know, six, nine, 12 months later. And I'd do the same thing. As a consequence, I learned lenses. But as a byproduct of that, I have some really lost years of college photography where I'm using nothing but a 21 millimeter lens or a 200 millimeter lens. And so I learned what a lens could do very particularly. But I also learned what I didn't like. And so that by the time I got out of college, I liked that medium range of lens. I learned that that was best for me. So 28 to 90, I would say. I mean, I carried, when I was at Geographic, especially early, I carried a whole 
range of lenses because I didn't know what they wanted. I had to learn that. And I learned that I could be myself there. That was the great long-term lesson is that I didn't have to become something they wanted. They were okay with me being myself. And myself was the 28 to 90 guy. Mm. That's when you ran into me. I was maybe 20 years into that pattern. Mm. I understand. Honestly, I'd feel like a lot of the things that I think keep photographers from being, I don't know, better is that they just can't make decisions and too many decisions keeps them from making the right ones sometimes. And, you know, they've got a massive amount of lenses, whether it's zoom, wide angles, you know, non-prime, all these little things in between. And I think sometimes they just get stuck trying to find the right lens, trying to find out what lens would fit the situation best. And to me, I just tell people, you know, what you're going to use is the thing you use most of the time. That's 24 to 70 or something like that. That Mm -hmm. keeps you in this little range. And I think honestly, constriction on artists sometimes can actually make an artist better because they have boundaries. And so to me, I always liked when you said that, that actually helped me go, you know, I don't need this lens. I don't need that lens. I got rid of a few lenses actually after I took your workshop. Right. And I just feel like that's better for people because in the process of making decisions, it just takes away some of the things they probably aren't good for them, you know? You're absolutely right about that. And my life got better when I carried less equipment. And so by the end, I was really walking around with three lenses and two bodies. And that's to do an entire National Geographic assignment. But it didn't start out that way. I had to learn what I didn't like. And I also had to learn that I could be myself. That took years. Mm, Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. So when you were in the formidable years with your dad, I read a little bit about how you were kind of on an outing with your father and you took some photographs and this one photograph you made won a contest. And that was kind of a early indicator of who you were going to be. My dad, what he liked about photography is that it put him in close touch with the parts of life that he liked the most. And one of those was trains. And he also liked circuses and parades, and he liked pretty girls. And he found that photography was like a way to be in touch with all of those subjects. And he and I would go on photo outings together to these places that he liked, because I liked them too. I liked all the things he liked, I liked. So we went to a train station one day near Cleveland, and um train was there, and we sized it up. He gave me his camera, which was a roll a cord or roll a flex. And he said, now look for, he told me how to size up the situation. He said, look at the graphics and look at the background and look at the setting and take a low angle and it'll accentuate the diagonals in this picture. And there were, there was a very strong diagonal of the train depot roof and hanging from it were these long icicles. He took a position, not posing, just being himself. He took a position where he could watch the train at a closer range than I was. And I took a position to get him, the station, the icicles, and the train. And he had told me memorably, Sammy, compose the picture and wait. Well, I'd never heard of that. And I was 14 years old. And it didn't make perfect sense to me in my life, my energetic life, to wait for a picture. That wasn't photography, and it wasn't me. But it's what he advocated, and it's what I did on that day. And the train departed, 
in a cloud of steam. And when that happened, he buttoned his coat. All unposed, as I said, it all happened on its own. But it happened together. And when it did, I made the photograph. So thus was made the photograph that many people think is the best picture that I ever made. The best picture I ever made, in many people's opinion, many knowledgeable people's opinion, was made when I was 14 years old. Hmm. Which is a sobering thought if you allow yourself to think about about it very deeply, because, you know, 60 years have gone by since then. And I've made many, many other pictures with serious intent to do better than that photograph and haven't succeeded in their estimation. But it's also a funny thought and a happy thought that I was able to absorb what my dad had to say. And together, so to speak, we made that picture, which has had a long life. The prints that I made as a boy of that have sold for, to me, a lot of money because they're vintage prints that mark the very beginning of my career. Mm. You know, mine was of uh, ducks in the water, spitting water out. So I think you may have one upped me there. <laughs> mine wasn't that impressive, although I still have them. I don't think anybody's going to buy those anytime soon. But part of me is like, that is the champagne bottle that launches the ship into the ocean. Right. That's a great way of putting it. That's how it feels to me. It's something to celebrate. Yeah, no, nothing to live up to, just something to start with, you know? Right. I know that I've heard Malcolm Gladwell say that love isn't the answer, but it's the way in. Oh, good. I've always loved that idea that this isn't the end of something, mm -hmm. the middle of something. It's just the way in. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what this photograph probably is for you. Definitely was. It was a tangible way in, but it was also a spiritual way in. Some of the things that I remembered you telling us during the workshop that we took at Santa Fe, George and I and like 10, 15 others that we were in the class together. One of the things I love that you said was somebody in the class said, Sam, where do great photographs come from? Do you remember what you said? I hope that I said from inside you. you know? I'm not sure what I said. What you actually said was great photographs come from good photographs. Oh, yes. Right. Yes, that rings true. And I love that because it sounds so simple when you said that. I was like, of course they do. And everybody kind of, I think everybody in the class was like, <laughs> knee slap. And then you didn't say anything after that. It was a very dramatic pause. And everyone in the, in the class just had to sit and think about what you just said. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, ah, oh, crap. I so strongly believe that. And I phrase it a little bit differently in workshops now. And that is... I say, I don't want you to be thinking about greatness this week, but I do want you to be thinking about goodness. And I want you to think about it every time you bring the camera to your eye. The reason that I am a serious snapshooter is to be and stay in the good zone photographically. So that when I make a snapshot, I don't do it casually or inattentively. I'm very attentive to the modest snapshots that I habitually take. I'm a lifetime snapshooter. One of the reasons I do it is to practice photography, practice good photography, so that my snapshots are composed, they're considered, I'll wait, I'll do the three or four things that I do to make a fine photograph. I do that every time that I make a picture. I'm conscious. In fact, if I feel like I can't take just an incidental 
careless or carefree picture. The act of bringing the camera to my eye awakens my thoughts and my sort of mantra about what I need to do to make this as good as it can be. And that takes us back to goodness. And I say now in workshops, the path to greatness goes through goodness. You can't leap to greatness. You are right below it all the time. And occasionally, circumstances conspire to allow you, if you're tuned, to rise up to a great image and not be a stranger to it. Mm. Be ready for it and do the right things, the three or four things that must be done to sort of execute the equation that's needed to see it, to reckon with it, and to realize it. I sometimes in workshops and in conversation with myself, I'll use the word realize. How well realized is this picture compared to what was, what the potential was? Mm. And I can look at a picture of yours or someone else in a workshop and say, that's very well realized. It doesn't mean that it's great. It means that it's close. And that's where you want to be. Mm. We had to show our photographs to you in front of the whole class. It was, um, right. you know, it was, I guess, probably for you, that was normal. For a lot of us, it's not. And it's so funny. I push and preach cropping. Do not crop in camera. Do not crop in camera. Mm-hmm. I submitted four or five photographs to you. And you know what's funny? The one that you mentioned was one where I had cropped the artists. Her name was Imogen Heap. I would cropped her hand out. Mm-hmm. And I had fallen in love with the image so much so that I had forgotten <laughs> that I had an uncropped version of it. Mm-hmm. And it's just so funny that, you know, I'll harp on that kind of stuff. And then here you go. <laughs> the first thing you said was, you shouldn't crop this. And I was like, oh, I can't <laughs> believe I cropped that. <laughs> but I think a lot of times I think we get in our own way. That's why I'm bringing that up. For instance, if you and I are in a busy city, we're in Cuba, we're in, um, you know, anywhere in the world. and you are the teacher and I am the student and you mentioned those three or four things that we need to do to get to that place. What would those three or four things be? What would at least, you know, a couple of those be? Well, the relationship of the subject, whatever the subject is to everything else in the picture, the fully integrated collaboration, you might see a relationship of all of the elements in addition to the subject. I think that most photographers are subject-centric thinkers and and workers, seers, you might say. Their vision doesn't get very far beyond the subject. So what's the subject of this picture? It's this person or this thing or this place. And beyond that, they don't go. I would say that I have a lifetime habit of reversing that thinking. And so I look at the totality of the scene and fit the subject to it. That's what I mean by fully realized. If something's well-realized or fully realized, the subject is harmoniously or interestingly wedded to everything else. All the other colors, all the other shapes, all the other forms, the space that's available in the picture. So that if somebody came up to me and said, take my picture, I would immediately look past them and concentrate instantly on everything else. So that's composition. And uh, it's the desire also to want 
the desire I have to want an image to be rich and deep and meaningful beyond the subject. In the Amazon, for example, I was photographing 15 weeks. We had one encounter that was meaningful, and it was with a sloth. Happened to be a sloth that was carrying a baby. And the sloth was, in its unique way, locomoting. And you couldn't call it walking or kind of crawling, but in a uniquely animated way across a beach. And I was with a Danish photographer, a dear friend of mine. And he used telephoto lenses to zero in on the portrait of the sloth, its body, its face, and then the baby. And I looked at the sky the trees, the water, the beach, and the beach that was between myself and the sloth. I was using a 28 millimeter lens. He got very good pictures, very good portraits. And my pictures were good too, worthy of publication. We talked about it afterwards and I said to him, Torben, what's to tell me in your photograph that this wasn't taken in a zoo or a game farm, a wildlife reserve? And he said, well, that's a good point. Your picture shows the totality of the Amazon. So, yes, he made a a strong decision for a portrait, but not for a portrait set in the Amazon. I'm sitting here at my desk, and I've got a picture in my hands of a 90-year-old Buddhist priest, a woman. And she's got a strong face. She's got a bald head. And she's got the look of wisdom on her face. So it's a very strong portrait. But behind her are about, I would say, 12 different shapes of a classic Japanese home with sliding screens, soji windows, mats on the floor, and three or four depths of rooms, all of which continue the same color theme and the same texture theme as is on her face. So. Yes, she has a strong face, but relating her to the room that she's in, which is her house, is relating her to her life. That's what I want from a photograph. So yes, light matters, color matters, texture matters, volume of space matters. Everything that's in the scene matters, and it all succeeds when it's in support of her, her portrait, pictures about her. And she's micro-composed into the space. She's not clashing with the space. I dignify her, I honor her in this photograph by successfully, I would say, placing her in this realm of spaces. Amazing. And I've heard you describe this as layering, the layering process. Yes. And I teach this when I teach, and of course I give credit to you, So talk a little bit about the layering process and how that affects the way that you look at things. So I want layering. First of all, that's a desire of mine. I want to see layers in a photograph. If I see a portrait, then it's it's a face and nothing but a face. Edge to edge, not so interesting to me. No matter how interesting the face is, it's just a closed facial landscape. I want to see that face in a setting or that person, or that animal, or that thing in its setting, a setting that speaks. I want the picture, the elements in the photograph to speak to each other. So in the case of the Japanese woman, the room speaks to her, she speaks to the room, and the room speaks to itself. It takes layers to do that. That's why the 28 and 35 are are my favorite lenses, because 
the possibility is there to picture a person in a meaningful to them space, their world. It might be a momentary world. The most interesting picture that I've taken in the last few years is of a young Japanese woman, a college-aged woman, who's on a train, a regional train in northern Japan. I saw her from a distance. We were both in transit between trains, and I lost contact with her. And then I regained visual sighting of her getting on the same train that I was going to get on. And I looked around the train until I found her and took a position across from her. And in a very complex, intense process, I worked up the courage to talk to her and then discontinue that conversation and let her resume her day. And her day was one of travel and in a nod to the picture that I made of my father in 1959, I stayed with her as a subject until she looked out the window wistfully at a station that we were departing from. And that's when I made the picture. There's a beauty to her, but it isn't about her beauty. It's about her wistfulness. There's a slight poignant quality to how she's looking out the window. And that's what I was after. Something thoughtful, something introspective, and she provided it. Mm. At the end of this, I would call it tense, diplomatic. I didn't want her to know that I was photographing her, so I had to wait. And even though I'd spoken to her, I then waited for this moment. Mm. In addition to her face and her, what you call her posture, I guess, there's everything else in the picture. There's the inside of the train car, the seat that she's sitting on, the clothes that she's wearing, her hair. There's what's outside the window. And every element of that picture goes to support and frame her. So that it's her as a wistful face was not enough. Far, far from not enough. It needed everything else. But everything else is meaningless without her. So there's a a harmony, a sort of a harmony or a speaking to quality between this humble train car and her. So it's a totality. That's what I'm after. And that leads you to layers. Maybe the thing I should say is, in this case, the picture started with her until I made it. And then what was happening out the train car window that she's gazing out of, that matters. That takes over. So what's happening outside on the back layer matters. What's happening on the middle layer, the wall behind her, what's happening below her, the seat that she's on, what's happening around her, all matters. And all in color and texture and tone and spirit, the light coming through the window matters. So that's going to be the title page picture to my book, because it's new. It was taken 60 years after I made the train departing picture of my dad. But I'm still thinking the same thoughts. I'm thinking that everything matters in this picture. And I had that thought when I was 14. Hmm. I'm okay with some things not changing. (laughs) 
one corner, this one corner in Japan where you photograph these two friends together. Just talk about this amazing story if you want to. I'd rather hear you say it. So I was in Hagi, Japan, which is a small regional city, very far away from Tokyo. So unto itself on the southwest coast of Honshu, the main island. I went there in 1980 and I was by myself. I had a bicycle. For five weeks, I just bicycled around and walked around this small city and I got to know it. And the subject of the story was the antiquity of this small city. It had been unbombed in the Second World War. So there was a lot of traditional architecture and old walls, old walled roads and so forth, gardens, shrines. And that was the subject, as I say, of the story. And uh, I was 10 years into my career at the Geographic. And what I knew about working there and about myself is that you could overwalk, and in my case, overbike a subject. You could overtravel it, constantly looking for the new best situation. So by the 10-year mark, I knew not to do that. I knew that the thing to do was travel around the city, look for two or three or four locations that spoke to me as a photographer and as a person, and repetitively go back to those sites. So there was a street corner on an intimate street that had two beautiful walls, very old, and it had a compelling graphic, the way the corner turned. And I saw that the light was good both morning and evening. So. Once I realized this existed, I didn't go to other street corners. I only went to that street corner. But day after day, nothing happened. I mean, nothing really compelling happened. Motorcycles would come around or motorbikes would come around or people walking dogs or whatever. But then one night, one evening, two elderly ladies in their late 80s came by and they were arm in arm and they were wearing the old... Japanese robes that were traditional and for them still were commonly worn. They weren't costumes. They were daily garments. They came by, they passed me, they nodded, and I thought, this is it. And I photographed them as they approached this corner, thinking that they would continue on around the corner and carry on down this well-walled street. So I followed him with a 28-millimeter lens, keeping a discreet distance. One of the pictures is good. It's still a picture that I look at. But they stopped at the street corner, to my surprise. And it was clear that they were going to part from each other, not carry on. So I backed off, and using a 90-millimeter lens, I watched them say goodbye to each other. It's important to realized that the picture that I made, which has become well-known, is not the picture that I wanted. I knew that at the conclusion of their saying goodbye, that they would bow. And that was going to be the ultimate expression of traditional Japanese culture and friendship, in this case, respectful bowing to each other. And they did. And I made that picture. And it's never been published. And the reason is that their faces are obscured. In the picture that became well-known, they're smiling and laughing with each other. You can see the expression on their face. And one of the women, 
the most elderly, reaches out and touches the garment of her friend. That was the moment. I made the picture, and it has the three things that I'm looking for in an environmental portrait. Number one, the setting. Number two, the expression on their faces. Happy. And number three, gesture. And the gesture is a very affectionate and endearing one, reaching out and touching the arm of the other lady at the same time that they both smile. And of course, I had the setting locked down because I'd been there many days. Now, to bring this story forward, George Nobecci and I, and plus his mother and another photographer, Skip Klein from the United States, went back to that street corner to revisit that, to me, historic moment in my career when I captured traditional Japanese culture, architecture, fashion, and friendship all in one photograph. So we went back to that street corner, and it had changed cosmetically, but the spirit of the corner was still there. And we waited around, and again, once again, nothing happened. And then a lady came along. We showed her the picture, and she said, that's my mother with her best friend. And that has led to a friendship with this lady. I've been back a couple of more times. I've had an exhibit in Hagi. The lady attended the lecture. She's introduced me to her daughter, a woman about my age. And I have a friendship with her now. So from granddaughter to mother to grandmother, I have a connection with the ladies in that family and that street corner. And it all came from believing that the foundation of a successful photograph would be not stalking some person, but stalking a setting. And so when I teach photography, I teach setting first, subject second. Setting first, subject second. It's a belief of mine that's been proven so many times to result in good photographs, that if I seek the setting, the subject will come doesn't always happen. But nothing, no mantra, no way of photography is foolproof and guaranteed to give you a result. This has just been proven to work for me. It might not work for everyone. But it does increase the possibility. It does. To me, if setting is important to you, if it's all about subjects to you as a photographer, then you'll slam whatever setting or background that's available, you just slam it behind the subject. And that's not photography to me. You know, a lot of the work that I do now, it'll be sometimes I'm directing music videos and things like that, or just having, you know, a time to spend photographing things. And it seems like this culture right now, especially with social media, is about hurry up. And it just seems like as a contrarian as I am, and I love this, this is what Chris Buck calls himself. I think I call myself this too, but I go the opposite direction and I say, slow down. Like I can remember one video that I did specifically where I, the artist and I not disagreed, but we just kind of had different beliefs about how this video should end. And he wanted quick edits and chop, 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 chop. And all I could think of was no, 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 slow down. He was literally singing hallelujah. It wasn't even a religious song. He was just singing hallelujah at the end of the song. And all I could think about was just enjoy this slow down and enjoy this. And I think that's so much of what 
Sam Abel is, is just slow down and enjoy this moment. I am that way, and I believe in it, not only as a way of being when you're in the field or on the job, but I believe that in the age of quick cuts and fast pans and hurry up, uh, that your work will stand forth has more of a chance of resonating with the viewer. There's such a lack of it that it'll stand out simply by contrast if you do something contemplative and meditative. Yeah. My favorite photograph I've photographed recently is in Estonia. That's where my wife lives. And I just was above some reeds and I was photographing, you know, kind of an ocean scene. And just for some weird reason, there's this one rock that just peeks its head above the reeds. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the, I thought about you after I took it. And it was the shot of the fisherman on the sea. Right. When you told me that the photo, and you show this photograph, the photograph just before it, the photograph just after it, the person's head was bobbing up and down in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And his head just sits right at the horizontal plane in the background perfectly. Right. And I thought about that. And it reminded me of this photo that I took. And it has nothing to do with each other, but it's just like, for me, it's perfection because there's such peacefulness to the photograph and I just truly loved it. And and it was like, it's so funny because a lot of people around me think that, you know, the portraits that I take must be what I love. And I'm like, no, this is what I love. Right. Me, this part. And that's something that's very special to me. Just the moment where I can take a breath and enjoy my life. Those are good thoughts. That's what to be looking for. And that's what to respond to in life. And then bring that into your work, you know, make the picture so that it's a proof, kind of a testament to that part of you that this scene is about. This is about you. It's about reeds. It's about a rock. It's about water. But it's also about you. Lately, I've been saying in workshops that what I want you to do this week is walk out into the world until you and the world meet halfway. And that's what you just described in this picture. You have a sensibility. The world is a place. And there are times when your sensibility and the world meet halfway. And that's what you just described. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what you've got going on. Tell us about this book, first of all, because I'm excited about it and I can't wait. Tell us about this book, this retrospective of your work. I haven't had a book in a number of years. It's been since 2006, something like that. And I've been photographing and no one's seen that work because I'm no longer at the Geographic. I'm not regularly being published anywhere. And I'm all right with that. I don't require publication to fuel my photography. As I tell people, I was a photographer before I went to the Geographic, and I'm, I'm a photographer after leaving the Geographic. But that's been, you know, 15 years or so, and that's part of the motivation. The other part of the motivation is the title of the book, the subtitle. The subtitle is Themes and Variations. The common thought about geographic photography, I think, is that it's good, it's strong, but it's not thematic. You go from Russia to Japan to Australia to Ireland to Italy. And so it's it's about those places 
and it's not so much about you. My contention in this book is that the place has changed, but the photography didn't because I did it and I was unchanging. I had themes, photographic themes, aesthetic themes, intellectual themes, philosophic themes, spiritual themes from a young age. And those manifested themselves as early as college and certainly at the geographic because I was on my own most of the time and I never had a shot list. And so what I learned I could be a geographic was myself. And so myself had just 30 years of uninterrupted practice at producing photographs, the source of which was myself. Yeah, the place changed. It was Russia one year and Japan the next. But Sam Abel didn't change. And this book is about those unchanging themes that start right away in Newfoundland in 1970 and continue on into Japan in the year 2020. So it's 50 years, 100 photographs, and the book will succeed, in my estimation. To me, it will succeed if the reader is able, by turning the pages, to see the themes arrive and flourish and deepen. There aren't many themes. There's like three or four themes that have been important to me for 50 years. And we're not going to overshape the experience of the reader that we talked about earlier. I'm not going to be writing and saying, see this theme here? It's either going to be there in the eyes and mind and soul of of the viewer or not. Mm. So I don't want to over-curate the book. I just want to present the photographs. So they're going to be presented chronologically, starting in Newfoundland, 1970, and ending in Japan in 2020. But the constancy of the vision and the deepening of the themes is the subject of this book. Mm. On the Photo and Taken podcast, we always ask three of the same questions. And mm-hmm. the first question was, which photo or photo shoot got away from you? What was something that was supposed to happen that didn't happen? And it's not really about regrets. It's just about the reason. Mm, I think the only subject that my work didn't live up to as published was a wonderful story on the subject of coffee worldwide. Now, doesn't that sound deep and rich and interesting and aromatic and exotic and far away and yet near? I mean, everything was there in that subject. But as published, it's a shallow, forgettable subject. There's not one picture in the story of a person sitting in a cafe or anywhere drinking a cup of coffee. The intimacy that you have with coffee, the beverage of a lifetime relationship you've got with it is utterly absent. I think I got it. It just didn't make it into the story. And uh, I have regretted that. Possibly, uh, I should go back and publish my own little book on that subject to show that I did get the soul of the human coffee relationship. Because I photographed it for a year, Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, North America. 
I went deep on that subject, and you would not know it by looking at the layout in the geographic. Mm. It's always been one of my favorite quotes from Johnny Cash about what he missed about June, and it was, you know, coffee with her this morning. Yeah. That sums up like what you're saying, just the intimacy of coffee. And right. it's just you alone with it. Yeah. That's amazing. What shoot, and you know, I think I know this answer. I think it's the photo of your dad, but what photograph made you? What's the thing that where things changed for you? Right. The photograph of my dad would be that single photograph that I made when I was 14. That changed everything and got the attention of this high school teacher who really put me under his wing and made me editor of the paper and editor of the yearbook. And nobody had ever done that before or since. That photograph of my dad is what he saw and why he identified me and nurtured me. And that further changed my life. But at Geographic, the most influential or consequential assignment, there were two. One was Newfoundland, Canada, which you, you can look at that story today. It was published in the early 70s. I did the work in 70, 71. And that was kind of pass-fail. In other words, I felt if I failed on that assignment, I wouldn't go forward with a career at the Geographic. So I was up there, I was by myself, and I was confused. I didn't know if I was a National Geographic photographer or a temporarily on leave newspaper photographer or a teacher or a student. I was just out of college. So who was I? I wanted to be an artist, so that was on the list. But I didn't want to fail at the Geographic, and that was on the list. And how do you pull all of those things off? But I did. It was difficult. I was suffused with a sense of failure almost every day that it wasn't happening. But it did happen. And the lead picture of that, which is two dorymen on the North Atlantic in dories fishing, put me on the map at National Geographic as a photographer who could penetrate the soul of a people, of a way of life, and of a place. And that was noticed. It was noticed by my peers. It was noticed by the editors. It was noticed by the photographers who were senior to me. I was a photographer to reckon with because it was more than about Newfoundland. It was about the soul of the place. Newfoundlanders understood that, and so did people. It's geographic, and so did readers. A couple of people have said that that picture changed the course of their life, that they became photographers because of that photograph. Well, that happened right at the beginning. And then there was another assignment, which I inherited from a photographer that was supposed to do it, but didn't get the assignment and quit geographic. And that was an assignment on the life of Leo Tolstoy. And everyone saw that when I got that assignment in 1983, that it required a step up from Sam Abel. Sam Abel had to step up in order to work in Russia and to live up to Tolstoy. I had to live up to Tolstoy in everyone's estimation, especially those photographers that believed that they were more qualified to do that. And they were. I was not. Mm. But I had that literary background. I studied English. I knew Tolstoy very well. They didn't know that. No one knew but me. And I thought, not only do I have to live up to this, I can live up to it. 
And the picture that put that story into everyone's mind, readers and the editors and my peers, was a photograph I made from inside my hotel room of pears on the windowsill. And I, I worked on that picture for 12 hours. And it's not like a documentary picture of mine. I arranged and rearranged and re- rearranged the pears. So it's kind of an art-directed picture, and that's not me as a photographer. But at the end of those 12 hours, the picture that was produced, it's my most well-known photograph. It's been reproduced many times in many ways and is very well-known. And that put me at another level in my career, which I would call the top level. The level I got on in 84 is the level I stayed on the rest of my career there. Mm. So what shoot, what photograph is just too crazy to believe? Twice I almost killed myself and the people that I was with because I was chasing light and storms. Both episodes were in Australia, one in 1990 and one in 1995, I think. Both involved small planes. I was with friends who were also Australian photographers. The subject was the dramatic weather of northern Australia, which is, they have their own monsoon season there in northern Australia. And uh, I wanted to cover that. And it happened to be a very dry season. And there were no cyclones. But I studied the weather map, and I saw that there was one offshore that was going to stay offshore. And I hired a pilot to fly near it, told him to stay outside of it. And the storm overtook us. Now, there's no door on my plane. In both episodes, there was no door. I just had a seatbelt on. And in both episodes, I'll just summarize this. You could not make the case, even though you were trying very hard, that this was survivable. No one in the plane thought that it was survivable. But we found an abandoned oil exploration atoll that wasn't on the map. Any map wasn't on the navigation map because the airstrip had been abandoned years before. But we found it, and we survived. And I said, I'll never do that again. I did it five years later. (laughs) And I guess from a photo standpoint, all I can tell you is that I was chasing light. I was pushing the envelope to get great light. And twice I should have died and felt that that was imminent. And so did the pilots in both cases. And that's sort of a war story, I guess you might call it. It sounds like the heart of darkness to me. (laughs) But the thing that was on my mind is that two or three of my colleagues at the Geographic had died in aerial photography episodes. Mm. And that was what was going to happen on both of these occasions, I felt. Wow. Younger people may know this just from as a screensaver, which I know caught the ire of you from the tree in the field that was a thousand years old. Oh, the Boab tree. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was a thousand years old or more, wasn't it? Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah. You know, that was about light. I knew where that tree was and I knew there was great light. And I stopped short of it twice to photograph other scenes. And I thought, I'll still get there in time. And when I got there, the sun had set. I just hung out in my land cruiser. I just hung out and made bad pictures of that tree. And then I got a second sunset. The sun hit the clouds, these massive storm clouds that were overhead, 20,000 feet over my head. And the setting sun 
which had left the earth, was now striking the clouds high over my head, and it brought down this golden light. And it's only because I sat there in a funk that I got that picture. Years later, something happened to that tree. Yes. I went back five years later, and it was gone, just a relic of it, a fraction of it. It had been struck by lightning and then was being eaten by green ants. When I went back a year or two later, it was gone, completely gone. Wow. And it was a monarch of a tree. A relic of something that's seen so many of those days, Mm -hmm. just like the one you photographed. Yes. Well, Sam, this has been an amazing time. It's exactly what I was hoping it would be, (laughs) and even more. And, you know, there's something about you, Sam, that always strikes a chord with me and others just from being able to observe and to speak about photographs and love the life that you have and those people that have walked through your camera lens. It's something that others can live up to and aspire to. And I thank you for today. Thank you, Alan. You know, one of the things that we love to do here on the Photo and Taken podcast is to support the photography community and visual artists as well. One of the other things we love to do, because Marcus and I both have a lot of friends that are incredible musicians from you know all around the world and record around the world and tour, and we just absolutely love to support them. Music for this episode is by one of our favorite bands, The Daybreaks, and their new song, Two Kids. And our theme music is by our good friend, Aaron Tosti. Hey, it's Marcus DePaula, producer of The Photo Untaken. Thank you once again for listening, and thank you to Sam Abel for spending so much valuable time with us today. You'll find all the photos they discussed in the show notes for this episode at thephotountaken.com, along with links to Sam's website, samabel.com, his Instagram account, and a link to the Daybreaks website if you want to check out more of their music. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be a huge help for us if you took the time to rate and review The Photo Untaken in your favorite apps. Alan and I really love the amazing people we're fortunate to have as guests on the podcast, and we hope photographers and creatives of all types really enjoy every episode. I'm Marcus DePaula for The Photo Untaken, stories from outside the frame. Thank you so much for listening.